You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We begin with the question that we ended with last time, which is how are the verificationists, the positivists, going to express the atomic facts that are supposed to be reported by simple observation sentences in the sciences. And the key was to do this in such a way that you included all of the sentences you wanted to include from the sciences, so that all the scientific statements are going to be acceptable, verifiable, and so forth, but that the ones they wanted to exclude, which were very much philosophical claims, metaphysical claims of other kinds, moral claims, religious claims, many kinds of political discourse, that was supposed to be excluded. And it, was very, it turned out to be much harder than it would seem to get a criterion that would cut it up the right way. Sometimes they were too loose and they seemed to let in too many things as meaningful. The positivists wanted to rule out. Sometimes they were so strict that it wasn't suitable even for use in the sciences. Now, to their credit, the members of the Vienna Circle and later disciples of theirs recognized this pretty early on. So even within their own camp, as it were, they spent a lot of time trying to develop and refine this criterion in such a way that it would work, as it were, would work for the sciences to express the kinds of observations that the sciences make and would remain relatively certain, incorrigible, the kind of thing that couldn't be gainsaid. Now, Moritz Schlick himself, who was, you might say, the grandfather of this group in the Vienna Circle, was troubled by the fact that if the atomic sentences describe sense data, and the sense data are private, they're mental events that are private in the sense that my perception of red, a red sense datum, is not going to be the same as your perception of a red sense datum, then how do we know that we're seeing roughly the same thing? We have no way to verify, so we're speaking of verification, we have no way to verify that what I call red and what you call red are the same color. They might be very different for all we know. So Schlick's suggestion was that maybe the way to get around that would be just to say as long as these sense data bear the same relationships to each other, for me, that your sensations of red bear to, to related uh, color sensations and so forth for you, then we can communicate with each other because we'll be reacting to things in roughly the same way. That is, you know, when the light turns red, we'll both stop our car. It doesn't matter in a way if I'm seeing the same exact thing you are, as long as we know that when we see this, whatever it is, we should stop. So it's a red light, we'll say. And um, so as long as, in a sense, the context or the structure could, could be the same, then it doesn't matter that much whether that the sensations are private. But the difficulty, one difficulty anyway, uh, comes from the sciences, a complaint from the sciences, as it were, that it makes the actual qualities that things have incommunicable and, in fact, unverifiable. That is, I can't really verify that the light is red just because it appears a certain way to me. And science is about qualities of things. It's not just about logical orderings or the relationships between different kinds of qualities or concepts. It's about the qualities that the things have. Some things have positive charge, for instance, others don't. The scientists don't want to say, well, as long as um, these things behave in a certain way and so forth, it doesn't really matter whether they both have positive charge. 
No, they have positive charge and it has explanatory um, significance to them and so forth. So it doesn't seem that that way of making um, these statements more public was going to work out. So another member of the Vienna Circle, Otto Neurath, came up with the idea of protocol what he called protocol sentences. And protocol sentences are supposed to report atomistic events or you know simple events, but ones that are publicly accessible. So they are not supposed to be just about sense data. An example of a protocol sentence would be something like at 3.15 p.m. on June 10, 2003, Anne perceives an antelope in her front yard. So you get in there the time, the place, the date, and so forth, the location, and what the perception was, and who, the observer for that matter, who perceived it, and so forth. But there's still obviously now a difficulty of another kind of how to clearly identify the things in the sentence. Remember Wittgenstein's insistence that each thing was going to map onto something in the world. So how do we clearly identify Anne? Do we have to instead kind of have this long thing about the person whose passport picture is registered with the government in this location and so forth? The person who's the daughter of these two people and their passports are registered. I mean, you, there's many ways you could try to pin this down, but all of those, of course, are equally have a lot of ambiguity in them as well. So it could get longer and longer and longer and very complicated. How do we know that she perceives, when she reports, I saw an antelope in my yard. How do we know it was an antelope and not just a deer, say? It looks a little bit like an antelope. How do we specify the front yard? That's vague. Do we have to say really a specific space-time point? Or is it enough that was in within a certain region and so forth? So if we do try to put in all these kind of specifications, obviously we lose a lot in elegance and simplicity. It's not clear that this is going to be very useful for the sciences. But a, a second and maybe deeper problem here was uh, one that Schlick raised, and that is that these kinds of sentences don't have certitude. They could be mistaken. They're no longer incorrigible or certain because they're not just about sense data. They're about things out there, people, antelopes, and so forth, people's yards. So they're public and intersubjective, but they're not established with certitude. Now, if you sufficiently revise the rest of your system, you could use a different set of statements and make the rest of your claims consistent with those. So that even if you were to make a false claim, as it were, if you're willing to revise your other claims to make it fit with those, um, you could preserve the kind of overall coherence of your view. So that was Neurath's proposal. He said, well, we don't have actual certainty that's true about what's out there. We don't know if it's an antelope for sure, or maybe just a deer and so forth, but let's just go with it being an antelope. And as long as that doesn't conflict with the other things we want to say and observe with our other observations and so forth, we've got a consistent system. Let's just go with that. But again, this sounded to somebody like Schlick, right, to the true believers in verificationism, this sounds like you're caving in all over again to a kind of idealism. You're giving up on the coherence picture of truth that our atomic sentences are supposed to reflect the facts. Now it turns out that if the facts don't quite fit, that's okay as long as we can make it fit with well enough, as it were, with other things we want to say. So uh, Neurath's suggestion was rejected by many other members of the circle, and particularly by Moritz Schlick. Now Schlick tried again to restore certainty to these basic sentences, all right? Neurath had given up on that. He wants to express observations about the world but restore a kind of certitude to them. So his solution was to take these same protocol sentences and take them as the true atoms of experience and translate them into 
statements about sense data. That was the idea. So the confirmation statements now are going to be translated back into statements about sense data. After all, as Neurath had them, they, they turn into kind of just hypotheses in a way. So how could that serve as the ultimate basis for knowledge? So Schlick says he's going to translate these protocol sentences back into uh, what he calls confirmation sentences. Now one advantage to trying to treat the sentence as a whole instead of just each part of it is that statements could be verified or falsified by events in the world in a clearer way. In other words, you could um, claim about what's going to happen by seeing whether it happens. When it comes to just a simple thing like red, it's very hard to say whether we're seeing the same thing. But if a red thing behaves differently than a blue thing, then there'll be an observable difference about claiming the thing's gonna, this paper's going to turn red and so forth. So it had its advantage to treat sentences now as the key thing that's going to be verified or falsified. So take Neurath's protocol sentence at 3.15 on June 10th, 2003, Anne perceives an antelope in her front yard. Uh, the corresponding confirmation statement, and I think you have to put in here, it's uttered by this person at this time and so forth, is going to be something like antelope-shaped brown here now. So you go back to, in other words, Russell's type of very minimal reports of our experience. So these are going to be like analytic statements in the sense that, as Schlick put it, the occasion of understanding them is at the same time that of verifying them. To understand them is to verify them because what are they about? Items of our immediate experience, sense data. Unfortunately, of course, there are two problems that arise again. The first problem is that confirmation statements of Schlick's variety there are private again. They're personal. I cannot directly verify what Anne sees at a certain place in time. I can only directly verify what I see at a certain place in time. And they're momentary. Remember, they're, they're linked to a place in a time at 3.15 p.m. So you only get to verify these things once, and then your chant is gone. Nobody else can go back there and verify it again. You can only use these in the sciences then, well, you know, science want to repeat our experiments, if you're going to go back to a protocol sentence that replaces things like, you know, A-shaped brown patch here now, you've got to replace that with something like, you know, Anne saw an antelope in her yard. <laughs> you have to refer back to the person who saw it. You have to say where here and now was with some reference to the time and the place and so forth. So in a way, if they're going to be useful for science, you've still got to go back to the ones that don't have the same kind of certitude and so forth. And then the other problem with, with Schlick's approach, which we've already seen, is that these observations or experiences of sense data are uh, mental states. They exist only as long as I'm thinking of them and so forth, and therefore they're not verifiable by anybody except me. Nobody else can say what I see here now and so forth. They cannot inspect my sense data, only their own. So this, rate, this attempt was struggling, to put it mildly. There are many difficulties about how to formulate it in such a way that we capture what the sciences are doing in a way that was somehow public enough to be part of science and yet had the kind of certitude that they wanted. Now Rudolf Carnap, another member of the Vienna Circle, proposed a program of what he called reduction statements. And the reduction statements were a proposal for how to use language about psychological states like knowing, willing, and so forth. We would replace these, he thought, with biological states, statements about biological states or something else that's empirically accessible, like brain processes and so on. And I will cite him on this project. 
He says, let us take as an example the term angry. If for anger, we knew a sufficient and necessary criterion to be found by a physiological analysis of the nervous system or other organs, then we could define angry in terms of the biological language. Since we don't yet have a necessary and sufficient criterion of this kind for anger, the term angry is, at least at the present time, not definable in terms of the biological language. But, nevertheless, it is reducible to such terms. It is sufficient for the formulation of a reduction sentence to know a behavioristic procedure which enables us, if not always, at least under suitable circumstances, to determine whether the organism in question is angry or not. So all you need, according to Carnap, is some kind of corresponding behavioral physical manifestation of anger that always goes with being angry. And that will be sufficient. And then you can replace any claim about, you know, so-and-so is really angry with so-and-so is in a such and such a state, the blood pressure is elevated and so forth. Now the one difficulty is that these sentences, of course, these reduction sentences tended to eliminate uh, what we might call the inner quality of psychological states. If you focus only on the behavioral symptoms of being angry, that doesn't seem to reduce anger to something else. It's simply to replace talking about anger itself with talking about something else, right? Something we normally describe as the effects of anger on the body, the physiological results of anger, not anger itself. That's not what being angry is, although it can raise my blood pressure. My blood pressure going up is totally a separate issue from what anger is. And so Carnap recognizes this, and he decides that, well, we can allow into our, basically in the end, we can allow into our view of the world, into our scheme here, the language we choose could just be according to our purposes. So if our purposes are scientific purposes, we're not going to talk about anger, we're going to talk about things like blood pressure. Maybe if we're using the language for other purposes, we can talk about anger. So he says, there's no such thing now as defending a metaphysical commitment of some kind to a world of Aristotelian substances or, or individual things and so forth, because according to Carnap, uh, to accept the thing world, as he puts it, right, the, the kind of common sense view, means nothing more than to accept a certain form of language. In other words, to accept rules for forming statements and for testing, accepting, or rejecting them. So you just pick a way of speaking, and included in this choosing is choosing a way of deciding which sentences you're going to accept and which you aren't. In science, of course, that way is going to be this empirical testing and verification and so forth. But he says, if we're going to talk about cats and mats and giraffes and so forth, we can do that. And we just accept different rules for forming our statements and for testing them and so forth. They'll, they'll be looser and more public and so forth. And he calls this the principle of tolerance. That different languages, you know, might be used for different purposes. And so we can, in a way, talk however we choose to talk. Now, according to Schlick, therefore, and to the original program of positivism, that's selling out. You can't have a principle of tolerance. The whole idea was to divide between science on the one hand and all of this other irrational, superstitious stuff on the other hand. And now we've got this tolerant view that, well, depending on what we're doing and so forth, we can pick whichever languages we want. Uh, we don't have to stay with the one that exactly mirrors the nature of the world and so on. This was just unacceptable to many of the traditional logical positivists, if we could put it that way. So they continued to work, try to work out how it is that in the sciences we can confirm things and by our experience and in other areas of discourse we can't. 
And one problem was trying to just formulate the verification criterion itself. A statement is meaningful if we can verify it as true or false. Well, does the thing have to be fully verifiable? It turns out that's going to be very difficult in some cases. If there was, you know, at one time, if there were dinosaurs in this part of the world at one time, there's, there's certainly evidence of that still in the fossil record and so forth. But can we totally verify it in some kind of absolute way so that it's absolutely certain now that there were dinosaurs of this variety here? Or what would count as a total verification of that? Um, even if we find the fossils, do we have to rule out the possibility of somebody out importing them and so on? It seemed like it could go on forever, this project of total, absolute, certain verification. So this is one of the reasons why many of the positivists moved toward um, concepts like co confirmation. The thing's testable in principle, or it's verifiable in principle. Because after all, scientists want to make statements about things like, you know, what's on the planet Mars? And, or what's on the other side of the moon? Now, of course, we can verify what's on the other side of the moon, but in the 30s, we couldn't yet. And still, it should be meaningful to say, the scientists wanted to say, look, the other side of the moon has craters and things more or less like the ones on this side of the moon. But if you can't verify that, then is it just nonsense? Surely not. Horrors, you know, scientists have to be able to do their thing. And so we had to figure out a way in which that's still meaningful. So the move was, in principle, we could verify it. We know how to. We know a method according to which we could verify it. Supposing we built right, a rocket that would go up there, enable us to at least take pictures, or maybe even to physically be there on the other side of the moon, then we could see for ourselves. So uh, now it's still a meaningful claim. Unfortunately, um, some of the claims in science are, have a kind of universal character. Many of the claims in science, in fact, have a universal character to them. It's not just that, that sugar tends to dissolve in water, but it always does. Sugar dissolves in water. So how are we going to test that one? Uh, if I take a lump of sugar and throw it in the water, it dissolves. That's one case that hardly seems to verify the whole principle that this will always happen. So you need something else. And it's hard, no matter how many times I did that, if I did that every day of my life, every minute of every day, it still doesn't seem like it would support this universal claim. So the, the next attempt was to try to say, well, if we could falsify, the, if we knew it would falsify the claim, then that's sufficient to make it a meaningful claim. So it's a falsification criterion of meaning. I know how to falsify it. That is by putting a lump of sugar in water and it doesn't dissolve, that would falsify it. So any statement you can verify or falsify is meaningful, is empirically meaningful. It's not just nonsense and so forth. And then people said, well, what about sentences where we don't really know how to verify them yet at all. We, maybe they are verifiable, but we can't tell. Proposals, you know, weird theories in science, black holes and so forth. There are black holes, or there might be things like black holes, and all they do is absorb energy, and they don't let any out, and so forth. And you go, well, how would we test that exactly? You know, these sort of speculative claims that sometimes come up in the sciences. Um, it turned out that very hard to imagine how we would test them. So you had to get more and more vague about what, it, what exactly counts as being able to test a claim. And the more vague you get, the more chances there are that it's not just going to be scientific statements that are meaningful now, but also claims in morality, about the nature of God, about the life after death even. In fact, you might say sort of in the spirit of positivism, 
Some philosophers tried to do empirical research into things like whether there's survival after death, trying to take pictures of paranormal cases of paranormal experiences, do recordings and so forth. And then there's that um, influential book, Life After Life, about people that had near-death experiences and then were revived in their description of their experiences and so forth, which really didn't seem to be easily captured in the language of empirical science. And people were fascinated with this as a kind of empirical evidence for surviving the death of the body. Obviously, the positivists were appalled by that kind of approach. I mean, they very much wanted to rule that stuff out, on the one hand, as meaningless, just total nonsense. On the other hand, they wanted to keep all of the statements of the sciences, even the more theoretical ones, the hypothetical ones. They wanted to save those as meaningful. It turned out to be very difficult to try to do. Now, Rudolf Carnap, who proposed the reduction statements for mental language and so forth, was certainly very much in the spirit of the positivist movement here with respect to the meaningfulness of language about religious claims, about metaphysical claims. Uh, in fact, he said, the statements of metaphysics do not serve for the description of states of affairs, neither existing ones, because in that case they'd be true statements, nor non-existing ones. In that case, they would be at least false statements. They aren't really statements at all. They're not, they're not making an assertion. They're not describing states of affairs. So his proposal is this. They serve for the expression of the general attitude of a person towards life. They just express your general attitude towards life. That's what metaphysical claims do. If you're a religious believer, you have a certain kind of optimistic, maybe, attitude towards life. If you're an existentialist, uh, you have a dark attitude towards life, and so on. A.J. Ayer, who we said was an enthusiastic fan of the positivists, developed and uh, clarified and ran with this kind of idea of treating statements, uh, metaphysical claims, or other kinds of philosophical claims as expressions of feeling or attitudes or passions or something like that. This was his proposal. And um, many philosophers along the same lines, since positivism was the name of the game, it ruled philosophy, the philosophical world, for many years in its own way, tried dutifully, you know, obediently set about trying to reshape moral language and religious language and so on to accommodate this new orthodoxy about what could be meaningful and what not. So when we turn to next lesson, the next two lessons in fact, we want to examine briefly some of those efforts in uh, both ethics and in religion to try to accommodate some way this verification criterion of meaning, to try to show that moral language, religious language, and so forth could still be at least minimally respectable. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.